Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Binge Sesh, a new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. They're talking about Winning Time, the HBO special series, and awesome at that, and just renewed for a second season about the Magic Era, Magic Johnson Era, that is, Lakers. The Los Angeles Lakers in all their glory. You want to hear the real story? Well, join LA Times TV editor Matt Brennan and professional basketball player Kareem Maddox, and you'll hear from actors, TV writers, professors, experts from the Times themselves, people who were there, and the real story behind winning time and the Lakers of the Magic Johnson era. Listen to it now. It's Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, wherever you get podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get them. Give a listen now. And now here's our show coming up. Hey, gang, it's your pal, Tim. Hope you're enjoying your Memorial Day weekend. We're taking a few days off uh, to enjoy some of the first bursts of summer here in the metropolitan Chicago area. I hope it's nice where you are, too. And you haven't burnt yourself yet by grilling any uh, meats or uh, other delicacies uh, uh, over the weekend. Uh, but rest assured, as we take a little break, uh, you will be in good hands this week. We uh, did a little thing couple of weeks back with our pal Arnie uh, Chapman. Uh, he is uh, better known as the football history dude uh, and also the uh, founder of something uh, extraordinarily uh, compelling called the Sports History Network, sportshistorynetwork.com, which is just a cavalcade of great podcasts around all kinds of great sports history uh, topics. Uh, we were honored to have a, a nice chat with uh, Arnie uh, a few weeks back. We talk about uh, many of our uh obsessive episodes on football, as you can imagine. And uh, we present it to you in its entirety this week. Please enjoy it. And uh, we will see you next week with uh, a new original episode from us. Uh, but until then, please uh, enjoy my chat with Arnie. We had, geez, I guess it was the beginning of the month. And I uh, hope you're uh, staying safe and we'll see you soon. On April 10th, 2019, a black hole and its shadow were captured in an image for the first time in human history. This was of course a historic event, something confirming one of Stephen Hawking's most famous theorems. Stephen Hawking was a brilliant scientist, and he was at one point interviewed by a brilliant NFL historian, Upton Bell. Where is this all leading, you ask? Well, let's just say I'm going to give you a ticket, because it's still available. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time to start off the DeLorean. It's sometime in April, 2019. We're sitting in a parking lot of a hotel next to the subway in the tiny little town that I live in. And you're listening into a conversation that I'm having with Upton Bell. Shortly after listening to a voicemail stating, Hey, Arnie, this is Upton Bell. I heard your episode. You did it on my father, Bert Bell, and I'd like to come on your show. So I'm sitting there listening to this voicemail. I'm like, I don't even know what this Upton Bell character is. So I did a little bit of research. I ended up giving him a call. And like I said, at the time, I didn't even know who he was. Didn't even think about interviewing at that time. I mean, I had a couple questions asked here and there at the Hall of Fame the previous summer, but that was about it. So nonetheless, here we are at the time. Some random dude telling me that I should interview him for my football history podcast. We ended up chatting for a while, 
He started sharing so many stories. Of course, uh, if you know, <laughs> of course, Upton's kind of famous for this. He just answers the phone and knowing that I had a Michigan number, he goes, I remember going there so many times in Michigan, so many different Lions games when I was younger and started telling some other stories and everything before he even really <laughs> telling me who he was. But then again, that's Upton Bell for you. You never know what story he's going to start. And you never know where he's going to go when he picks up the phone. So fast forward this whole thing a little bit. Upton sets me up with his publicist, gets me the book. I read through it, and then we set up the interview. I mean, I tell you, this was going to be my first interview of an actual interview on the show. Definitely a little bit nervous. Never did this before. Had to do some homework. So what better way to prepare for a podcast interview than to listen to someone else doing the same thing, right? Got to go to the game tape. That's where this week's guest comes in. Because we have Tim Hanlon of good seats still available. When I typed, you know, beep, pop, boop, Upton Bell into the little podcast app, one of the first things that popped up was Tim's show, Good Seats Still Available. I listened to the episode at least two or three times, taking notes, trying to figure out what I was going to end up asking Upton. Plus, we got that book, too, that he had. You know, there's so many different things. And there were a lot of other shows out there that already had Upton on it, but for some reason, I just hung on to this Good Seats Still Available podcast. Ultimately, it gave me enough confidence to reach out to Matt Algio and we ended up having my true first interview on the podcast about the Steagles not too shortly thereafter. But enough of my story. Let's get into Tim's show. Tim Hanlon runs the Good Seats Still Available podcast, and he's been at this thing for quite a long time. The show primarily revolves around reliving and retelling stories from defunct teams and leagues that basically either no longer exist or maybe they've come back a few different times for some of them. And unfortunately, as I'm sitting here talking about this intro, I already edited the episode and we missed out on probably about a good 15 minutes of the beginning of our interview. Basically, this is where Tim talked about how, why, what, where, when he started the Good Seat Still Available podcast, a little about his history in radio. And also, I told him that whole story about Upton Bell and how he helped me break into the interviewing game or the interviewing football space, if you will. So in a way, Tim is kind of like a virtual mentor for me, even though he didn't know who I was. So we're going to pick up this interview after all that stuff, right about the first time. The question is when he starts reliving some of the various episodes that he had covering some of the defunct football leagues. Of course, we cover a lot of them, but not all. I tried to pick some of them for the most part topics that we hadn't covered on the show, but there's no way to catch all of them. So we got into, eh, we'll call them 10 or so different topics. And then, as far as I'm concerned, the best thing for you to do is to go ahead over to his podcast, download them all, and listen at your leisure. If you want to find Tim's show, that's goodseatsstillavailable.com, or even just search for it in your favorite podcast player. But before we get into that interview, speaking of searching for podcasts, now is probably a good time where I should remind you to mash that little subscribe or follow button on your podcast player of choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest out the press episodes as soon as they release. Got it? Good. Now let's get into this interview with Tim Hanlon. Here at the Sports History Network, we, we're very fond of Upton Bell and all the different stories that he's given to us. And I, I started a show with him, oh geez, I don't know, two or three months, maybe it was more like two months ago. It was gonna it was gonna be his podcast, is the world according to Upton Bell, and we we started it. 
uh, first episode was launched uh, right, right before Super Bowl. Now I think about it because we all gave our Super Bowl picks. That's right. And of course, he was pretty close to it. And he gives you the story about a lot of the background. Uh, it hasn't been launched yet, but in the future, we're supposed to with also uh, uh, Jackson Michael from the game before the money supposed to be the other kind of co-host on there. So hopefully reach uh, reach out to the future and we'll see that there. And speaking of the future, this reason why I turned my video back on, I got to show you my DeLorean right here, right? So you get to hop on this this bad boy with me. Every guest gets to go on the DeLorean. And you're kind of special almost because uh, we're going to hop around to a lot of different time zones and different places in history. Might as well go back to the World Football League, what, what we talked about with Upton Bell. Uh, episode I, I saw 51 52 102 and 105 so you kind of covered and i'm sure there's more in there i just was doing a quick little list but uh let's go o- over these multiple episodes we're going to talk about as far as these topics and i want you to give me one to two of your favorite stories with when i bring up the names what rings a bell so in these episodes you talked all about, right i got my seatbelt on i'm ready to go i'm strapped in yeah, go. you hop out you, you get your mr fusion in there make sure you get a couple extra jolts in there and we'll be good to go we got the Detroit Wheels and Florida Blazers, and then also it was called the Wild and Wacky World of Football League with Mark Speck. So give me one to two of your favorite stories. Yeah, I mean, I think Mark Speck is probably the um, uh, the most um, uh, prodigious, I guess, contributor to World Football League history. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the Detroit Wheels franchise, right? The uh, proverbial wheels falling off the franchise. I mean, this is a team that, uh, you know, played a bulk of their games – you know, in Ypsilanti, not even close to Detroit, uh, had, uh, uh, I don't know, a dozen or two owners. They were all sort of fractional owners, apparently including uh, Barry Gordy of Motown and, and other stuff. So, you know, all these owners, but they, there was no structure in it. So it just kind of collapsed. There. The Florida Blazers, you know, they um, uh, they were their own uh, financial uh, craziness. But, you know, they, they opened the door, frankly, to... Orlando, I think people, uh, kind of, uh, forget that Orlando, uh, you know, was kind of always sort of thrown out there as a potential, uh, NFL expansion franchise market. Um, you know, obviously uh, Disney World had really just gotten going in the, the early 1970s and it was nowhere near the, uh, the metropolitan area that it is today and obvious actually now for, for sports franchises like the Magic and Orlando City. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the USFL came there, right? Um, I think the USFL, Orlando, the Renegades, I think in the, uh, World League of American football, maybe if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it, it opened the door kind of to, um, the Florida as a, as a potential marketplace in Orlando in particular. Um, and, uh, and this, the World Football League in general is just, is over, is a fascinating, you know, discussion topic because, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, it was just it came and went. Well, it kind of did, but it had so many wrinkles to it. You know, first of all, it was actually two separate leagues. A lot of people don't know that, right? They they just assume it was sort of one big failure. But the reality is that, you know, when it was founded by Gary Davidson and his um, band of merry men, shall we say, uh, himself an interesting story, because right? this is a guy behind also the World Hockey Association and the American Basketball Association and a whole bunch of other things. Um that, that his attempt at, at getting this uh, with full with bravado and questionable owners collapsed after the 1974 inaugural season um, and was reorganized under this guy named Chris Hemeter for a, a second go around with the same name, but completely different finances and, and incorporation and stuff in 1975. Uh, and that didn't even last the full season. 
So, and that's just the beginning. I mean, the financial shenanigans and uh, the television, the markets, I mean, Hawaii, everything from Hawaii to Charlotte and everything in between. I mean, can you imagine the travel and the nonsense? And I, I'll give you another one, which we touched on the WFL. We had a, a great conversation, which we just reposted a couple of weeks back uh, with a guy named Howard Zuckerberg. Or sorry, Howard Zuckerman, Howard Zuckerman, Zuckerberg, sorry, Facebook, but Howard Zuckerman was a name that's not known to, to most people, but if you ever watched any of those games, the WFL games on this thing called the TVS television network, uh, they, they, that thing had all the, we- they had weekly games of the WFL and just the stories of how, you know, they'd have trucks in the middle of the country kind of just waiting to see if there was a franchise still there for them to go cover the game that week so that they could move the trucks in that direction and drive to, uh, you know, wherever it might be, Birmingham or whatever. Um, so the craziness is, I think there's just tons of stories of the WFL that haven't been spoken about that, uh, still, uh, need, uh, uh unearthing. And I, if anybody's going to unearth it in book form, it's going to be Mark Speck for sure. Well, you mentioned Birmingham. Let's go, let's go ahead and head to episode 184 with, uh, Scott Adamson, one of the members of the Sports History Network. Don't, don't you mind? Birmingham's quixotic quest for pro pigskin. <laughs> what is, what does that mean? Well, I've always, you know, Birmingham, right, is uh, to the defunct and forgotten sports junkie such as myself, uh, you know, especially in football, right? Uh, Birmingham is always trotted out for any challenger league. And here we go again, starting this Saturday with the new, quote unquote, USFL, whatever that's going to be. Of course, has a franchise in Birmingham. It's always been sort of that uh, big city or biggest city without a pro football franchise, right? And there are no numerous reasons for that, right? College game is very big. Obviously, Alabama is a huge college football state. It's just fascinating to have found somebody who uh, wrote a book on sort of his lifelong uh, love or Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown as he's ready to kick it constantly. And how many teams in pro football, challenger leagues, uh, have come and gone in Birmingham. I think they probably own the record. I, you know, Memphis is probably in that, that discussion. I'm trying to think of some other markets off the top of my head, but Birmingham probably wins hands down for the number of attempted and failed and, uh, forgotten, uh, football franchises. And, you know, I don't want to jinx it, right? Cause the entire USFL experience that's, uh, coming, reincarnated, uh, coming up starting as we record this, coming up this weekend, uh, is going to be housed in Birmingham. So, you know, hopefully, uh, uh, Scott will have a little bit, uh, further luck there. Uh, and look, if anybody who should be uh, covering it is not only a, you know, a longtime sports writer like Scott, but uh, he's got a unique attachment to the subject at hand. So, um, I think he's going to have a ringside seat. And I, I sure as hell hope uh, he's going to be taking notes and, um, thinking about a book or some other form of, uh, following and, and d- describing the story as it plays out. Yeah, that's actually somebody that I, for being on the network with this, I haven't actually had him on this show. And someday we'll get the full story. The what uh, I can't think of the name of the my bromance with uh, pro football or whatever the the name of that book was. We'll have to get him on here and talk about it. But uh, speaking of some other episodes, I mean, there's so many that we could go to. I mean, I'm just going to pick one random. I have this list right here. You talked about the World League of American Football a little bit, but. Episode 134 with Alex Cassidy. We've got the London Monarchs. I mean, what's the story from there that from that defunct league? 
Yeah, uh, uh, people forget that uh, uh, William Refrigerator Perry was on that team, right? So um, a really good example of uh, what the uh, World League was kind of about, at least when it was originally set up, right? I mean, the NFL, you know, had always toyed with uh, European and, and international markets. Obviously, I think it's getting more concrete uh, as we talk about it in 2022. And you know, Mexico City and even London are sort of always rumored as being maybe the first outside of the borders kind of franchises. Um, and I, I think it's inevitable uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, you gotta, how are you going to grow this sport beyond where it is now? It's gargantuan here in the States, but, you know, international is where the growth is. You know, the Monarchs in particular were very interesting because it's probably the, the, it's the only direct international uh, uh, English-speaking market, although Montreal, the machine, uh, could have been considered as that, although it's dual with French. Uh, you know, I, I think it's in, uh, indicative that William Perry reference because this was a league that was designed, you know, essentially, I think for people, I don't want to say on the way down, but with, let's say, seasoned professional experience in the NFL or perhaps elsewhere, as well as young fledgling talent that wasn't just quite yet ready for the NFL itself, right? So a developmental or feeder kind of thing. But I, the, the fascinating part of it to me was having two, I guess you could call them parallel divisions, one centered in Europe and one centered in the United States, which is frankly all over the place, right? I mean, um, the travel just within the United States is a little insane. I mean, the New York, New Jersey Knights out of the Meadowlands and the Sacramento Surge, you know, that's that's already a cross-country trip. And then you want to layer in, you know, a trip to Cologne or uh, the, the Scottish Claymores or whatever, right? So uh, to me, fascinating because – here again, it's trying to do it's trying it's trying to do two things. One, fill in some markets that don't have NFL football, um, and bring them into the fold and test market them out, and maybe they'll somehow get NFL franchise worthiness someday. But then also doing kind of the same, but more specifically to Europe, which is also not just about expansion, but kind of growing the game, or in many cases introducing this foreign game to to international markets. I, you know, I, the, it failed for a whole bunch of different reasons, but um, still endlessly fascinating for its own reasons. And some of the better logos you'll ever see in uh, forgotten sports history. So I didn't really realize that the NFL Europe was originally this and then, well, so was it really like consumed or was it just too separate? And it just seems like they were the same thing. No, no, it was, they were two, they were just uh, geographically, they were sort of two separate uh, uh, divisions or sort of folk focuses. But um, no, they played each other in, uh, there were, it was an American team versus a, you know, there was, it was a fully integrated schedule. But um, the reality is they were kind of like two, two different sets of goals, right? In the United States, it's really trying to expand the US markets to others that might be able to facilitate or handle an NFL franchise, uh, whereas in Europe, it was completely green field. So not only were you kind of expanding NFL football to those regions, but frankly, having to kind of teach the game all at the same time. So it just seems like there was conflicting strategies there for for these where these franchises were. I mean, the Ohio Glory were trying to do different things locally than, say, the Barcelona Dragons were. And you know, but that's what made it interesting to me. And, um, you know, I, I think in hindsight, you can kind of see maybe why it wouldn't sort of last too long. Just the, just the travel alone. I mean, coming to Barcelona to, for a Barcelona at Sacramento game 
I mean, it's just, you know, I, I can't imagine that flight, the, the training, the, the, how many days on the ground, time zone adjustments and stuff. I mean, it's tough enough playing the pro game once a week in the United States, for God's sakes. Yeah, I mean, that's like probably a nine to ten hour time zone difference, maybe a little less. But no matter what, that's almost a half a day flipped around. I mean, I remember just flying to Germany the one time and we got there and it's, oh, to us is night. Oh, no, it's the morning. I guess we're going to stay up all day and totally different compared to our west to east coast. I guess I didn't realize again that it was – so the NFL Europe ended up surviving for what, like 12, 15, almost 20 years. I, I don't know the full, full time zone or timeline there. Yeah, it, it, it was, I think the full sort of, uh, Megillah was kind of the first four or five years. And then they kind of sort of, uh, uh, ta- uh, you know, sort of tapered it off and, and then made it more this, uh, I guess they call it U- NFL Europa. Uh, and it was literally just a, an intra European thing. So out went Montreal. I don't think they ever – I think they always envisioned of having one, say, in Mexico, a franchise there, and probably Asia as well over time. But they they just kind of focused on you know a, number, a few more years just specifically having teams in Europe. And it then became just solely kind of a developmental league. So it was really stocked with with players with uh, who were looking to go up, if you will, versus those um, you know potentially going on the way down. Um, you know, I, I think the idea comes back. I mean, I, I think – uh, the, again, the, the, the appetite for internationalizing the NFL American football game, uh, is, is probably higher than it's ever been because of probably economic necessity. So I think you're going to see European, um, top tier American football sooner rather than later, especially now in these days when NFL owners now are actually buying up, uh, parsh, partials or whole units of, uh, uh, English Premier League teams and La Liga teams in Spain and soccer. So, um, you know, the cross-pollination and cross-ownership of sports uh, across borders at that is starting to happen. So I, I think the NFL's uh, dalliance with Europe and other markets around the world uh, probably ramps up uh, sooner rather than later, which could be fun. Yeah. I mean, at some point in time, too, the I mean, we already have greater technology as far as flight, but it hasn't transformed that much in the past 20 30 years at some point it's gonna get there where the travel time won't be as drastic or they'll have some kind of form of even traveling to help these players out and i always talk about (laughs) okay first there's the in the in the earth okay we got country to country what happens when we're you know 200 years in the future going planet to planet or the moon team versus the earth team and talking about those types of uh you know battles and such but i guess that's for Captain Kirk to figure out down the road. Uh, you mentioned the, the world, or I'm sorry, the NFL Europe and some, you know, maybe developmentals. And of course, one of the biggest names that I think of, because I only, I only knew them as existing when I, when I was like old enough to really follow football. So Kurt Warner, right, comes out of there. And then another league that he came, you know, he played in was the Arena Football League. Uh, Jim Foster, episode 43, 44, 243. Apparently, you like this guy. And then 250 had Greg Saran talking about some various arena football league. Uh, what's what's your favorite memories or topics when it comes to that that league? Yeah, um, I, I still don't understand why uh, I, there are some successor leagues, certainly not nearly the the, um, you know, the, the the major footprint that the arena original football league had. Right. Um, indoor football to me still feels like it has a niche and a role, just like I think indoor soccer does, too. Uh, which still exists with the major arena soccer league, which is, 
you know, uh, clearly not as big time as the original MISL, but um, I was just fascinated by the Jim Foster story. Um, Jim Foster uh, is a guy grew up in, in Iowa and, you know, an entrepreneur worked in the NFL offices uh, in the uh, 1970s, 1980s. And I, the, the origin story of the AFL to me was fascinating. And it actually is something that intersects my personal life because uh, as the, as listeners to, I think that first episode that we did with Jim a number of years ago, uh, you'll remember that the inspiration for his patented version of the indoor version of football called the Arena League uh, came from his and interestingly, my also attendance at the Major Indoor Soccer League All-Star Game at Madison Square Garden. Uh, I think it was in 1982, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he had the idea of if you can miniaturize soccer, why can't you maybe do the same with football? And on literally on the back of a manila envelope, he sketches out what a, a shortened football field might look like, uh, you know, surrounding it with um, dasher boards and what the goalposts might look like and some netting and that kind of stuff. And um, he brought the idea to his uh, overlords at the NFL and uh, they summarily uh, laughed and dismissed him. Uh, that the idea was nuts. And um, that's when the entrepreneurial spirit took over and he said, I'm going to go out and do this. And, you know, the, the, just the, the irony of having been there in the same room as him uh, when that happened, it just kind of kismet, I guess. Um, but it's fascinating because it speaks to, I think, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit that is one of the many themes that we sort of pulled out in almost five years of doing this. Um Without the entrepreneurs, we don't have the innovation, right? And, uh, you know, Lord knows there were plenty of them in the 1970s. I mean, we mentioned a few of them, like Gary Davidson and, uh, you know, uh, our, our uh, various uh, friends who have started up leagues and, you know, uh, come and gone around those those concepts and stuff. And, you know, they are uh, innovations that uh, ultimately wind up getting incorporated into what lasts today, right? The, the three point line now in the, in the NBA and the shot clock, those are all innovations that preceded the NBA from other leagues. Um, same with football. I mean, the, the, the bringing the, uh, you know, the idea of the two point conversion and, um, you know, some of the experimentation going on now with the fledgling USFL and now the XFL again, you're going to see those are innovations that really, you know, the action, the action point, you know, that was a WFL creation, the AFL experiment with a bunch of those things too. So that all of that shake, shake vigorously. And that's sort of, you know, without the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, guys usually taking a chance, hustling some dollars um, and uh, trying to get uh, people interested in the idea, selling franchises, um, you know, truly hustling to kind of make the thing happen. And um, speaking to people's uh, love of sports and uh, perhaps maybe even, uh, the idea of making a quick buck too, but that's, that's a whole nother thread. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get into the entrepreneurial spirit too with the next one, but I, I, so did you uncover this, this, uh, you were in the same room in the same game at, during the interview, or was this something you had previously known? No, I, I, I didn't know about the, uh, his, uh, getting the, the inspiration from that MISL all-star game, but I did know I had been there. 
Uh, I think I got a ticket stub or two and maybe even a couple of pictures from that game uh, back in the day. Yeah. So um, he's like, yeah, it was uh, – and I asked I, – I can't remember what his answer was, but I did ask him like sort of what like made him think he – why go to the game? And it's interesting because we've done a ton of uh, background stories on the the old uh, major indoor soccer league. And, you know, uh, the, the the whole proposition there, there was no MISL franchise in Madison Square Garden. There was the New York Arrows – uh, in Long Island, and there was uh, a new team starting at the uh, then new Brendan Byrne Arena in the Meadowlands. So the two teams in the MISL at the time were surrounding the metropolitan area and New York City proper, um, which is part an interesting dynamic. New York City is a gigantic market, and and Madison Square Garden, you know, the the most, world's most famous arena, self uh, self titled, of course. Um, but you know, it, that, th- if you want to connote the word major in anything you're doing with indoor sports, right? You, MSG has got to be a place to do it, right? So, uh, that's why they put the all-star game, even though there was no game ever there previous there. And sure enough, it attracted, it attracts people to at least see the spectacle of it. And somebody like, somebody like a Jim Foster is like, you know, is intrigued by it and a whole, you know, a whole uh, league comes out of it for a good 20 years or so. Now, it did not end well uh, by the time it sort of breathed its last breath, uh, you know, about four or five years ago. You know, it had long gone to other owners and attempts and that kind of stuff. But I, the idea to me still feels very fundamentally interesting, solid, entertaining and sellable to a market. Um, I know it's doing pretty well on the minor league level, but, I, you know, I. It doesn't stretch the the imagination too much to think that, you know, a reconstituted AFL could could make a comeback someday. Yeah, I would think as well that there's a market for it and it's a little bit more niche and it's got that different kind of excitement that maybe brings on fans in a different way type of thing. And someone tried doing that, trying to compete with the NFL. The next guy I want to talk about, again, entrepreneurial spirit and uh, having major failures as part of have, becoming a great entrepreneur. And let's talk about the original XFL with Brett Forrest, episode 98. So, um, you know, the the only guy who wrote an actual book about the, the, the disaster that was the XFL, the original XFL, was this guy, Brett Forrest, who is now, um, he's like a, 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 a security uh, uh, analyst and, and reporter for, I think, the Wall Street Journal, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he's moved on in his journalistic career. And, um, but to me, you know, uh, it's an out of print book. And, you know, when you, when you, when you're doing a, a series like we're doing here, you want to get your hands on anything, right? That, that might have told the story uh, in print or out, uh, to, you know, kind of at least uh, use as, as background as fodder. And, um, you know, he was almost embarrassed, frankly, I think, about about that book, because I think it was written like very early on in his journalistic career. Uh, but to me, it was like mana from heaven, right? Because it's 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 literally, a, a, you know, a blow by blow account of all the craziness and stuff. Right. And nobody else had ever done it. Um, so I, I think he was at once surprised, but also um, excited that somebody had actually not only remembered the book, but wanted to talk about it. and. Um, you know, after he sort of got over the self-inflicted embarrassment uh, component of the conversation, he was like all in and had some really uh, poignant memories of some of the people that he met and uh, what he was thinking at the time and what he thought of the, the enterprise at the time. You know, it's interesting. I, the people who were around in, in, in 2000, uh, I think 2001, 
Um, uh, I think it was two, was it 2000 or 2001? I even forgot. I think it was 2000. Um, or is it, two, I think it was 2001 now. Sorry. That, I think about it. The, um, I don't, I don't think many people kind of knew what to expect from all of it. I, I remember, you know, I was, uh, uh, in the, uh, working in the, in the, uh, ad agency business at the time and in the media part of it, media buying and planning. Uh, I remember vividly, uh, various uh, television salespeople coming in from the NBC and, uh, that were, you know, kind of talking up what the league was going to be about and how the games are going to look and stuff and little mini XFL branded footballs from Spalding, you know, as little, uh, tchotchkes and stuff. And, um, but it's fascinating. It's like, okay, I hear football in there. I, I hear entertainment in there. I really, I'm just fascinated to see what this is going to look like. And just like the rest of the world, just curious to see what this was, what this would look like. I mean, you know, obviously as the games rolled on and the weeks uh, sort of passed, I mean, the, the games sort of look comical, but you know, Hey, how about a scramble for the, the kickoff instead of a kickoff? You know what? Uh, you know, those cheerleaders were not unattractive, I guess. I, you know, um, but yeah, it got a little over the top for sure. But, um, look to me, that was spectacle. I, it, it, it was endlessly fascinating. I, I'm not though quite sure. And obviously without being able to talk to Vince McMahon specifically someday, uh, why he would want to, I would understand why he would want to bring it back and try it sort of more legitimately. I totally get that. He's a showman, doesn't like to sort of lose and, and sort of be labeled as not getting it right, you know, so he wanted to get it right. But I'm not quite sure he would, why he would want to use XFL again as a name. And alas, that obviously fell apart for different reasons the second go around. But, um, you know, I, I at least, uh, admire, um, Danny Garcia, Danny Garcia and, um, The Rock. Why can't I never remember his, his actual real name? Um, Dwayne Johnson. To, Dwayne Johnson to, at least they're changing the logo, which I, they did a couple of weeks ago. I think it was a smart idea because now they're kind of trying to really reorient the brand and truly shed the skin of, of whatever certainly the first go around was. And, you know, maybe the, you know, the, the unfortunate memories of the second go around. Cause I think most people actually were probably very surprised at how good that second go round of the XFL was and had not the uh, pandemic kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of coursed through sports and, and entertainment generally. Uh, you wonder what it, what it would uh, be like right now, but I, you know, it sounds like they're doing all the right things one more time. And uh, I'm kind of excited at that prospect. Now, Cynics, Mr. Cynic in me, though, right, looks at what Fox has sort of scrambled together with this USFL starting up next week, this weekend. Um, I don't know. It just seems like a really very fast attempt to kind of beat the new, new, new XFL to the punch this time around. All right, what's this? Binge sesh, binge, binge sesh. Hey, all of a sudden, I'm Buddy Hackett. Binge sesh, it's a great podcast. For sure it is. It's the uh, uh, brand new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. Again, it's called Binge Sesh. Thank you, buddy, but that's how you pronounce it. Uh, And why should you listen to it? Well, hey, did you listen to our episode with Jeff Perlman back in the day? We talked about the USFL. Well, as you know, Jeff is a uh, prolific sports uh, nonfiction writer, and his book, Winning Time, was the impetus and the uh, inspiration for this wildly successful and controversial at that HBO series winning time about the magic era Showtime Los Angeles Lakers, the team that changed America and the NBA for sure. 
Uh, and Binge Sesh from the Los Angeles Times uh, is the place to, it's a companion, I would say, uh, to the uh, to the great series. Uh, if you want to really hear the inside story and the real uh, origins and the real uh, people behind the Skyhooks and the Slam Dunks and the Jerry Bus Empire and the uh, LA Forum and uh, all that was going on in that period of time, Magic himself, all the various stars and and uh, ancillary cast of characters. Um, it's about the basketball, but it's about so much more than just that. You'll hear from actors and TV writers, professors, experts from the LA Times, people who were there, and it's a fun romp. And it's hosted, co-hosted actually, by the LA Times' TV editor, Matt Brennan, and professional basketball player, Kareem Maddox. You may remember him from his collegiate days as a star standout at Princeton, and a current member, I think still, of the US uh, national three by three team. Uh, which is now an Olympic sport too. Give it a listen. Again, it's called Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, Binge Sesh, uh, from the LA Times. You can find it uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a hoot. You'll enjoy it. And um, we appreciate their sponsorship of our show. And now back to it and our conversation. I can remember from the XFL basically was he hate me and of course all you know there's the hoopla I was I was into it because I was I would say that was probably my maybe 97 98 was the most I was into the the wrestling and the 99 it spilled into maybe around 2001 or 2002 so just the whole them pumping it up on Monday Night Raw and all that kind of thing. Thursday Night Smackdown. I I think I bought into it. I watched it, but I don't. I couldn't tell you much of went on other than I just remember he hate me <laughs> in, the, in the name. But uh, yeah, Keith Smart. Right? Uh, I I think um you know look I think it was also kind of a marriage of convenience right. It's it's Dick Ebersol and NBC and Vince McMahon who's programming you know decades of you know what is now the WWE. And and a long, many decades heritage of, quote unquote, professional wrestling dating back, frankly, to the inception of the medium of television. Right. I mean, you know, the old Dumont Network. And I mean, these were, you know, pro wrestling from the garden, you know, was actually one of the first sort of live, regularly telecasted uh, sporting events, Um, you know, roller derby sort of being in the mix, too. And that sort of blend of like real sport and real spectacle, I guess. You know, it's just such a unique sort of entertainment concoction. I, I, I think, though, I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's about filling a Saturday night primetime broadcast television spot that wasn't doing anything, really. And why not? You know, let's experiment. Let's try to do something. Let's football, you know, is is king on broadcast television. Let's come up with something. But I, I'm not sure. So on paper, it makes sense. You've got two television production titans, if you will, coming together, putting their heads together. But, you know, I, I, I'm not sure Ebersol kind of saw just how much towards the spectacle part, uh, the enterprise was going to go. And, you know, I, it, it's, it's odd because, you know, you got football fans and you got sort of the spectacle of wrestling type fans. And I think they're both expecting something different. You know, when you try to mash those two things together, both wind up being disappointed. And I think that that arguably is what sort of happened. So you said Saturday night. Was that, and again, I, I can't recall the specifics. Was that 
during the NFL season or were they more like a spring league or summer? Yeah, it was done as uh, as spring and summer. Uh, well, actually, more mostly spring ish, I would say. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it was also this is this is another thing that's, that's to me is fascinating because you know you had eight teams and and they were sort of a a, a kind of a, a parsing between major metropolitan areas like the Chicago Enforcers. I mean, that first game at Soldier Field like in late February. I mean, what what kind of weather were you expecting, frankly, for for something like that, right? How many people do you think you're really going to get out there for that kind of, you know, a Chicago wintry spring-ish kind of – and March too, April. Hell, I mean, we're in April now. It's supposed to – you know, we might still get another snow or two. Um, You know, New York and San Francisco, sure. But, you know, they're also Birmingham, right? The Bolts uh, and the Memphis uh, Maniacs, right? You know, those are – again, here we go again. Two markets that have always been looked upon as – ancillary pro football possible adjacent markets. Um, and and I, it, it's to me, it's hard when you're trying to set up a fledgling league. It's hard to serve two masters, right? Because when you're, you know, you're in a market where you have relatively little competition and MLS and soccer has played this out, right? I mean, they're in Orlando, they're in Nashville, they're in Charlotte, right? These are markets that, you know, don't have, Baseball, for example. So from the summertime outdoor sports pros perspective, uh, they got a fighting chance to be uh, a regular use of one's entertainment dollars. Um, so I think it's pretty smart. But in the case of an XFL or a fledgling, you know, challenger football league, it's one thing to market, you know, a new uh, somewhat uh, uh, uncompetitive sports wise market because you could be or can be the only game in town or one of the only games in town, which is very different than trying to be this new thing in a major sports market like a Chicago or New York or LA or San Francisco, where there's plenty of all a distraction already just to get any kind of press coverage. This is going to be almost impossible from the get go, except maybe for the first game in the curiosity crowd. So I, it's, it's to me, it's very interesting as these things line up, you know, I, I don't know if you can do both at the same time from the, from day one. I think that's why the AAF was interesting to me because, and you got to give Charlie Ebersole credit for at least getting it on, uh, uh, off and running a year before the XFL was going to launch because they, they, they were in the ma- majority of their efforts were in markets that were, shall we say, less competitive uh, from other sports endeavors. You know, I mean, look at San Antonio. I mean, the team in San Antonio with the commanders, I think they were. There was something going on there. I mean, it was really, you know, I, I think San Diego, excuse me, San Antonio proved itself as being uh, worthy of, of a team. San, San Diego, you know, losing uh, the NFL. I mean, that's that seems like a logical place to to think about. Um, so, you know, I, there's some opportunistic pockets there for sure, and maybe the USFL and the new the new version of the XFL will will start to fill in those voids because I think um, there should be some lessons learned from those. Uh, from those experts. But again, I think smaller markets or non NFL markets make the most sense. I think you can still be interesting media wise without being in those gigantic markets and, and losing your shirts and or um, credibility in those markets where it's just, you know, damn near impossible to get uh, press coverage uh, for something so new. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And you keep, so let's, let the two cities you kept bringing up throughout multiple <laughs> topics was Memphis and Birmingham. Now, are they, 
throughout the conversations you've had with these experts, are they considering Birmingham and Memphis? Are like these fans are just always hungry for a new team. So if they were to have, say, an NFL franchise that they would support it, they feel like, or is it one of those just because they happen to be that that second tier city that's big enough and it makes sense? Yeah, it's that's a good question. It's really a good question for Upton Bell, for example. I mean, you know, because it's almost like Charlotte back in the 70s, right? So, you know, Charlotte was not nearly the metropolitan area it was then. It was still quite fledgling, shall we say. Uh, and yet, you know, moving the stars from New York to Charlotte, right? It was truly untilled uh, ground there. Um, and, you know, look at it now, right? So I – it, I guess it depends on what your strategic lens is and how long, what the longitude of it is, right? Cause, you know, uh, does Memphis or Birmingham ever get to the level of being a quote unquote major league or, uh, you know, top tier pro city? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you could make the argument that they could be on their way. I mean, look at Salt Lake City, right? Um, starting with the Jazz and now, you know, with, with Real Salt Lake and, you know, obviously the AAF had a franchise there. Um, I think everybody looks at Salt Lake now as being a, a metropolitan area of, of substance. Um, certainly Orlando has come along, right? Um, definitely Charlotte, Nashville, right, has become a real top tier. Columbus, another sort of city that, uh, even in the pro football realm, the Ohio Glory and, uh, et cetera. I mean, you know, Columbus is now a top tier, uh, major. So Austin now is, is probably next in line with, with, uh, uh, Austin United in, in Major League Soccer and now, you know, is actually being rumored as being maybe a, an expansion uh, or relocation destination for Major League Baseball if the A's to Las Vegas thing doesn't work out. So, yeah, I think there are lots of other uh, burgeoning metropolitan areas that, um, you know, could definitely support certainly pro football. I think St. Louis in the old XFL, the second version of the XFL was proving the case. Um, and I hope the XFL, if they're smart, they'll go to St. Louis because I think they like San Antonio for the AF. Uh, they were showing up and, you know, uh, in St. Louis's case, you know, abandoned by the NFL. So, um, yeah, some, 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 I, that said though, you know, I also think, frankly, sometimes these, these cities, and I think Scott brought it up when we we're talking about Birmingham. You know, there's a point at which I think people feel burned enough where it's like they don't want to be treated as suckers anymore either, right? So yet here we are, Birmingham stepping up and not only having their own franchise in this new USFL, but hosting the whole damn thing at least for a year, maybe two. Um, so I don't know. I It's kind of, you know, <laughs> just when people say they're done, they come back, don't they? <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if this episode is going to release before or after the one I just had with Peter Boner. Peter Boner from uh, Germany. He's a, a fan of the Cleveland Browns of all teams that he could pick from across the seas. It was the Cleveland Browns, and you know we Which talked one? about uh, one, the the the, the original. The or, I'm one. sorry, the new one. The 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 now. Now okay. the reason being, yeah, but there you go. Yeah, the, the, the reason I bring that up is right that there's a little intricacy that like. People like us on our little our show, that's important. That that's important to know, <laughs> even though people don't maybe care. The distinction is different because they're really two tributaries of that brown story, right? So, 
Right. And that's, that's how I was going to. So that's the reason why he chose them, because when he first started getting into the NFL and American football, it was right when he realized that they they basically, you know, they, they left. They took the Cleveland Browns away from the city and then they became the Ravens. And he kind of and he, he thought that it was cool how the city said, you know, what, we're going to sit. We're going to sit with this uh, logo, the same franchise, you know, yada, yada. So when they came back. He's like, you know, that's a team. It's almost like it's a fresh start. I'm coming into this new league as opposed to me as a Lions fan. I was always so I live in Michigan. I was always a Lions fan, going to always be. But it's like, what's worse, being a Lions fan and always being disappointed or having a team ripped away from you, always being disappointed like Birmingham? Well, look, it also speaks to, um, you know, I don't know how much you've been talking about this on on, on your uh, show, but the. You know, to me, one of the other threads of of what we've learned over time, and not just for football, but especially maybe for football, are the different approaches to ownership. Um, you know, there's sort of that league owned thing, like ma- Major League Soccer uh, has done. Um, you know, uh, or the franchise model, right? Which uh, is probably the more historical model, and certainly the one more rife, most rife with potential for shenanigans uh, are various conversations with the late, great sports entrepreneur, Dennis Murphy. It's a really good example of that, right? I mean, talk about hustling franchises. I mean, that's, that's he and Gary Davidson. That's what they were doing with the ABA and the world hockey association and the WFL was franchises and locations first and everything else. We'll, we'll get to the play and the players and all that stuff later. Right. <laughs> um, but, but it's interesting though, because you see, there are different business models and incentives, I guess, of the participants. When it's league-owned, like Jim Foster argued vociferously to keep with the Arena Football League, he he absolutely believed in central ownership, and people owned pieces of that via their 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 teams and whatnot. But it was not separately separately run, where everybody could sort of run amok, sort of loosely. But you know that's that's the NFL model, that's the NBA model, right? Where you've got you own a franchise of something significantly larger, but you do have a a decent amount of autonomy to do things. Um, I'm not sure which is the correct answer, by the way, because there are pluses and minuses to both of those models. But I I have sort of I guess sort of a, a resorted to believing one thing, and that is when you're starting something out, uh, central ownership makes a ton of um, sense to get going. And I think you see that with things like Major League Rugby uh, and Premier League Lacrosse and uh, still the MLS, uh, even in year 26. Uh, it might be time to take those training wheels off now, uh, you know, after a quarter of a, a century, but or add elements of. But, um, you know, I make no mistake, I think the centralized ownership thing, I, I think is going to actually be more and more of a thing as s- pro sports becomes more um, private equity owned and backed. I think uh, that's a phenomenon that's going on. I, and these are, these are going to be more like businesses. So I think sadly, a lot of what we talk about is, um, is going to be sort of the pre big business days, I guess, of, of sports. I, pro sports has always kind of has certainly gotten to that point, but I think it's going to go to another level for better or for worse as the years go on as, um, people can own multiple teams or shares of teams and stuff. And, um, it's already happening now with soccer. You know, you can, you know, the, uh, the, the the entity that owns Manchester City and New York City FC and the team in Melbourne and I, I don't know how I feel about that. That's uh, Red Bull is another one, you know, with multiple franchises, 
multiple sports across the world. I mean, these are becoming sort of conglomerates, not sort of individual sports franchises. So I don't know. To me, it feels like it's going to be a little harder to root for than perhaps maybe what we experienced when we were growing up. Yeah, and that's that leads us into the next topic as far as like economics go. I I was curious about episode eighty because it's the AAFC, AFL, and NFL's formative nineteen fifties, but it was with economist David Serdam or Serdam. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. W- what kind of a light did he have to shed as far as the topic goes from an economist point of view? Yeah, I mean a lot of his um, a lot of his work was uh, sort of born from. Economics and and um, uh, competitive theory, right? So things like uh, you know exclusivity and antitrust. You have to remember a lot of these challenger leagues often had uh, challenger leagues to establish sports had this thread of antitrust uh, sort of in their back pocket. Some of them used it well. Some of them used it as a as a decent threat. Some of them, some of them didn't, you know, and we could go into things like the Continental League and baseball or the AFL and football. It goes on and on and on. But, you know, it, it really uh, was a, it's a conversation to me, which is just as fascinating and just as important is how um, these big sports leagues have been aided and abetted by very favorable federal law. That has essentially allowed them to operate as, if you will, de facto monopolies or without any uh, reservation around uh, antitrust rules and laws. And, and, you know, when things get tough, those things always come back, um, out there. And I, you know, I'm not so sure, um, you know, as unions have become more pronounced and as the money is getting even gargantuanly bigger, um, that, um, those protections, frankly, can last for too much longer because, you know, everybody's going to want a piece of the pie. I, you know, with all due respect, I wonder how the consolidation of, of the minor league baseball system under the, um, auspices of, of major league baseball. I'm not so sure how I feel about that. I mean, I, I guess I understand the economic, uh, reasons for doing so, but. I'm not sure I like that idea as a fan. Um, I don't like the idea of the teams being culled like they did last year to kind of align them. They're already backtracking on uh, the the league renaming that they did. They're now going back to what the league names were in the AAA and the AA. Uh, they just announced that this week. So uh, there's only so much this business orientation can go without pissing off fans, which, by the way... <laughs> Uh, ostensibly is the reason for to do for for you know putting these things together. I mean, without the fans ponying up the dollar, you know, forty five dollars for a t shirt now, and you know, two hundred and fifty dollars just to go to a game, and all the various ticket fees and stuff. I mean, I, there's a real danger that you kill the golden goose with that kind of stuff. And um, I don't know. I don't want to be the old man yelling at the clouds here on this, but 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 that conversation was enlightening because it really gets into some of the um, beneficial legislation that exists on the books that has allowed uh, this kind of activity to go on. And I, look, you want another place to look at, and this is timely as today's headlines, is just the sheer insanity still of um, municipal governments throwing public money at stadiums and arenas for 
what is becoming quickly a billionaire set uh, and their toys, their their sports franchises. I'm not sure that's going to all end well. I, you know, just to, to give you a, a sense of that, New York City just opened up for the New York Islanders in in uh, near Belmont Park in in the outskirts of Queens, a new arena, a new indoor arena for for the specifically for the Islanders. That's it's either by whatever count, I think it's the fifth or the sixth indoor arena, major indoor arena in the New York City metropolitan area now. Um, so, some soccer fans, the one or two might be listening to this episode, may know that the uh, uh, the former New York Cosmos, uh, they which re, was reincarnated as a uh, then North American Soccer League version two team, had actually made a bid to create a soccer specific stadium there and. Uh, wasn't able to get it done because of various local shenanigans in the government there. But um, I don't know, a second soccer-specific stadium in that market versus a fifth or sixth indoor arena, you know, fighting for concerts and college basketball tournaments and all that kind of stuff, you know, that feels like uh, one or two arenas too many. And I think we're kind of at the cusp of, of that happening in other markets too, Los Angeles, for example. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you got to fill those stadia and those arena with arenas with something. And, and there's only so many concerts to go around and, and that's being rethought as, as we come out of COVID, we hope. Um, I don't know. It just, it, I, I've said this on multiple occasions and I don't care if it's football or, or other sports. I, we may be at peak sports right this very moment. And I, you wonder if there's a significant economic downturn of some substance. And there are some indications we could be entering and such. I think you'll see a shakeout of that. And I wonder how many minor leagues and, and, and 5,000 seat indoor arenas for, you know, uh, 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 the, the, uh, in pro indoor football league, you know, are going to be, are going to be sustainable. I'd like to be optimistic, but I don't know. It just, it feels like there's a reset that's needed because there seems to be so much all the time. And I'm not sure the economy is going to be able to support it if, um, if a pillar or two collapses for a while and, you know, we might be getting there. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Okay. How's so, that? Yeah. Yeah. How's that for yelling at the clouds and, and bringing doom and gloom to the world? Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Look, I, I don't want to say nostalgic here and, and, and old guyness here, but it, um, there's something to me that's special about how these teams and leagues that exist today came about uh, or where they were originally domiciled. Or what came and went or try to challenge them along the way. Like as an example, and it just seems like go, going back to the future um, is always good business. A case in point was last Friday night, uh, ESPN uh, celebrated the, you know, uh, the 75th anniversary of the NBA with uh, a, a great broadcast, alternate broadcast on ESPN2 of the Brooklyn Nets, uh, New York Knicks game. And uh, they basically parsed out each quarter to remember a certain decade in the NBA's history. So the first quarter was the 60s. It was all done in black and white. Uh, they had Oscar Robertson on. Uh, and they kind of just, you know, had all interspersed all kinds of uh, clips and memories and, and whatnot. And they did it for the 70s, 80s, and 90s as well, with replete with graphics that look similar to those broadcasts back in the day. And again, it was it was sort of this alternate broadcast of the game that you could see in modern sort of uh, manner on the regular ESPN. But it was great, it, and it was a great way to sort of tease out some of the little historical moments. Um, and 
it's kind of fun to know that there was a thing called the Syracuse Nationals that Oscar Robertson's played a, a bunch of years and, and excelled at. And the Cincinnati Royals, where he was a, a star for a couple of years. And, you know, the ABA teams that became now the Brooklyn Nets, they used to be in New Jersey and they showed the New Jersey logo. And I had to give my wife a, a five minute lesson on, on why they were doing a black, a game featuring the Brooklyn Nets using a New Jersey Nets logo from 1977. Um, she was confused, but I loved it because it was history. So I, the good news is that that history is still there. And frankly, it's just a wellspring of great stuff. And there's a whole generation of sports fans that don't even know. They just think that that they just think the NBA just like was there from from, you know, uh, from the time that uh, Jesus was alive. And it's just it doesn't didn't work that way. It's just this whole history as to why it came about the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I I always like it when they go back for anything. And I, I, I like watching any sport that's on. Of course, football is the one that I pay attention to the most. Um I guess the only thing that I would say is, and I'm maybe I'm not enough curmudgeon or whatever the word would be, but like in 20 years, people are going to be talking about like the different changes and the things that happen now that sure, some of our sports are going to be altered to maybe non-existence because of poor decisions made, but there's going to be other ones that rise in my belief that would be Hey, like you just said, we're looking at a, a that won't be live. It'll be in our earbuds or like our face will be having these chips inside our brains, whatever it is. And they'll be doing nostalgic moments about what you and I are talking about happening this upcoming Saturday, per, perhaps, you know, that kind of thing. And that that's what's cool about history and debatable for topics and just sports in general, I think. Yeah, look, I, I think uh, the one area, there are a couple of areas I would look to uh, in terms of how we enjoy sports and football. Uh, probably prime among them. I think, um, I think one is, uh, just the, um, uh, the experience of the telecast, right? So we're seeing the beginnings of it now with, you know, devoting a separate full channel to, uh, an alternate broadcast, right? So like the Manning cast on ESPN two during Monday night football and, uh, the slime cast of the Nickelodeon, uh, version of, of an NFL playoff game and stuff. And those are, those are fine. I mean, those are great ways to kind of experience the game in a completely different, uh, setting. Um, I think the next stage of that though will be, uh, as streaming becomes much more pronounced, uh, I think you'll see those, shall we say, alternate elements of those games. Maybe those are audio feeds. Um, those are how much or how little in terms of graphics one might, one might want to see during the game. Um, the twitchification, if you will, of, of those broadcasts where the consumer, the viewer, um, can lean in or lean out as much or as little as they'd like. Um, and, and that, and maybe interactivity is part of that. Choosing to, uh, do a, um, a group chat, uh, or, um, a video, uh, uh, you know, a watch party kind of, uh, thing. And clearly the fusion of betting. Uh, and, and or other gameplay kind of things. I mean, you know, the thing that freaks out or at least initially did, you know, the NFL and, and other major leagues, uh, with things like Twitch and Discord is it, it's almost a complete reversal of the benefit of the actual game rights where, you know, the, uh, the game itself is actually in a Twitch environment is in the background and in the foreground is all the trash talking and the emojis and the, you know, the, the, the chats and the, the, the prop betting and all that kind of stuff that's going on. And it, it takes a lot for a major rights holder with significant money attached to it, like the NFL to, uh, you know, 
be comfortable with some experimentation on their air or on their, their, their stuff. Um, but look, why, why do they take those tentative first steps to do that? It's because younger audiences, that's the way they consume and or mix and match media these days. So, you know, the, the HD lean back 4k linear presentation of a broadcast, you know, uh, with, uh, a holier than thou broadcast team of Al Michaels and Chris Collingworth, Collingsworth now, I guess on Amazon, uh, or whoever's the, they're putting together on that, those, those broadcasts. I mean, I think those are, that's for the old folk, right? But the new generation wants to be much more immersed for various reasons and have frankly more control over how and what they see. I'm not sure every sports league and rights holder uh, is ready for that. But I, look, I, you're seeing some, lots of innovation starting to happen. And I think if we had this conversation in another five or 10 years, I think the, the manner in which the sport gets to uh, one's uh, home or for you know personal consumption will be a lot more flexible and uh, interactive and maybe even immersive if you go into metaverse terms uh, than we experience today. I, I like to think that's going to be cool and interesting. I'm just not sure that the money part of it uh, is necessarily going to drive it to the the best uh, sort of outcomes, but we'll see. I mean, what could go wrong with legalized gambling and doing prop bets in the middle of a game? Uh, <laughs> what could go wrong with college athletes uh, getting paid uh, either in sandwiches or actual in real dollars uh, and not uh, being uh, tempted to throw a game? That's never happened before. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, there are things that are just somebody who's a little older kind of has seen this this story before but you know we'll we'll see i i want to be optimistic but um i have pangs of pessimism almost every day so we'll see yeah i mean that that just goes for anything in in business life whatever you want to call it the way the government works it's there's always going to be something that's that's going to potentially bring something down and i uh, speaking of bringing things down we're going to give you the last delorean question right here so Again, this is a different type of one. You're going to bring the DeLorean to the past. And what you get to do for a little fun game is take the entire organization, every single piece of equipment and player, everything that you want from any defunct football league that you've talked about on your show. We bring everything to current day. You give them what they need to survive. What's the one league that you want to survive today and happen long term? I like the original American Football League, the AFL. They're the ones that kind of truly took it to the man of the NFL um, and brought real innovations and different approaches to the game because it it knew uh, that the markets that they were in and uh, the the quality of the of the game had to be different. And I, you know, somehow I'd like to just take that that spirit, that ethos. And, uh, and, and, and truly make it, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, available and palatable today. I, I think some of the challenger leagues that we've seen since everything from the WFL all the way to the AAF and the second for even first XFL have all been sort of, um, I don't know, thin, uh, gruel by comparison to the AFL, which had money and collective will behind it from the very beginning uh, and a real challenger mentality and one that uh, had a, a long-term vision uh, to boot. And it, it lasted for 10 years and they were successful in merging into the NFL 
uh, because they were successful and they were uh, stubborn and they were in it for the long haul and they were committed uh, to making this a, a, an endeavor that would last a, a, a period of time longer than just sort of fly by night or only for three years. So I don't know. There was something about that AFL, both in terms of its uh, – to me, it's like the NFL was black and white and the AFL, in some cases, literally was full color. And to me, that's what injected – and I think NFL historians would say the same thing. Newfound enthusiasm uh, in a, on a number of different fronts, expansion and gameplay and, and excitement. Um, to me, that's the that's the hallmark of what football should be. And look, Lord knows there have been plenty of uh, nibbles of innovation and stuff. Um, and we've seen it from lots of different challenger leagues. They've all had a little hook or two. Uh, I think we need a real concentrated source of that to either take the NFL to the next level or show the NFL how it's done. Um, not that there's anything wrong with the NFL today. I, 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 you know what? I think there are plenty of things that are wrong with the NFL today. Concussions and, and the, the, the way the game is played over time, right? Which is just broken. The, it, but, you know, the NFL doesn't, they're the incumbent, right? They're the monopoly essentially, right? So there's not a lot of incentive for those types of entities, business or otherwise, to change. They don't have to. It's the golden goose, right? They're the biggest thing. on. They're propping up the frigging television industry, right? Broadcast TV for sure. I'd like to see more innovation. And I think there are plenty of football fans that would like to see those things too. To me, the original innovator was the AFL. Um, that's what I would want to bring back. And if we can take elements of the XFL and the newfound USFL and, and, and codify that into something uh, long lasting that will challenge and or absorb into the NFL eventually. I am all for it. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, speaking of, okay, the, let, let's get with your show. We, we haven't said the name good seats still available to, uh, enough on this, on this episode. We've been talking about the different episodes. Uh, before we go to the next, where can the listener of the show find you? Yeah, of course, as they say, proverbially, wherever good podcasts are found, which basically is everywhere. So you follow or subscribe there. Uh, we've, of course, got our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. We post all of our episodes there as well. Nice, convenient place. And and the, the, all kinds of sports. And again, if it's defunct, forgotten, previously domiciled, relocated, contracted, uh, whatever, uh, it's fair game. Uh, and we there's even a, a branch of football we didn't even talk about. And that's the National Women's Football League, which was a thing back in the 70s, um, which has just been a fascinating story in and of itself about how uh, uh, various uh, uh, women's leagues and then league kind of trying to, you know, play the game that they loved uh, and uh, had a few backers and, and, and a few bouts of, uh, uh, of success along the way as well. So, so much in football to, to, to further uncover. Um, we certainly love your cards and letters, as they say, uh, but just about any sport as well. And 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 um, uh, we just it, it keeps growing by leaps and bounds uh, as the months roll on it. So I, first of all, thank you for listening and or uh, thinking that I could make a, a decent podcast for you as well. I appreciate that and um, look forward to trading notes and um, uh, and, and more to come, hopefully, as uh, we keep going. Lord knows there's. Uh, as more as leagues keep coming and going, uh, it's uh, it's almost endless fodder for us, and uh, we're going to keep doing it as long as uh, 
as long as we find it interesting and fun to do. Man, you're almost like the mortician, I guess. That's uh, when you think about it, it's, <laughs> not, it's good for business when they go out, but you don't want them to go. You lose a lot. What about last words of gridiron wisdom for the uh, listener of the show, but through the lens of good seats still available? Um, I don't know if it's wisdom, but I would say, um, uh, you know, keep, uh, keep all of your, uh, 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 your, your knowledge sort of, uh, uh, open and, um, and your brain open to what might have come beforehand, right? Because if there's a new league, a new team, a current team, a current league, um, you know, ask yourself, where did this come from? My, where did this start? Um, and it, it's just interesting. I think, you know, every generation sort of thinks everything kind of started with them. Um, but, you know, frankly, there's, there's not a lot that's new on this earth. It just comes in different packages and flavors and, and labels and stuff, right? So, um, they say proverbially there's nothing new under the sun. I think the same applies to sports. You just have to kind of look back far enough and you'll find that some of these ideas and, and, uh, approaches and, uh, innovations and stuff, uh, and, and the leagues and teams, um, you know, just may have actually had uh, their start earlier than you might think. And um, to me, it's sports, pro sports is a, a living, breathing history lesson. And it just requires a little bit of uh, uh, of scratching the surface and, and, and a web browser to sort of go back and, and take a look at all that stuff. So, you know, you may not think that you're enjoying or, or relying on history when you watch a, an NFL game, but uh, I can guarantee you, uh, you tell me the two teams, we could probably go an hour and a half just to find out how those teams got there. Um, to me, that's fascinating, but um, that's me. And uh, that's why we do our little show. And um, uh, I appreciate people listening and and, and uh, doing the same. There you go. Defunct leagues. The intricacies that led to their ultimate demise. Now, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Tim Hanlon of Good Seats Available, because if you did, then you're in luck because there's a whole bunch of content that Tim has over on his podcast. Again, that is good seats still available. So if you're interested in finishing the conversation about defunct leagues, you probably should go check it out right now. Do it. Do it now. Just go ahead. Go stop this. Head over there. Subscribe and follow his show. Come back here and I'll close it on out for you. You can find him on this podcast player. Listen to just type in good seats still available. Or you can head to goodseatstillavailable.com. And speaking of defunct leagues, do you happen to be passionate about one that you wish was still out there? Do you want to maybe dedicate an entire podcast series to it? Or any other type of sports history show? Well, I'll tell you what, you're in luck. Because you're the perfect person to start that podcast series that might not be out there yet. And we at the Sports History Network would love to help you out. Even if it's a podcast about some other form of sports history or one player, a team, a league, pick your poison. Just head over to sportshistorynetwork.com and reach out to us on the contact page. Now, as we transition into next week, we'll dive back into an FHD vault episode to relive a memory from the past four years of the show. But for now, dude, I am through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. Make sure you're the first to get the next episode. Please subscribe with your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs>